Tonight, for the little while we're together, I'd like to use the epistle of Paul to the Ephesians. If you would turn over there, and especially in reference to the heart. The epistle of Paul to the Ephesians has much to say about the heart. I won't cover all that it has to say, but it does say in the fourth chapter that some Christians have blind hearts and walk like the Gentiles. That in the third chapter it talks about the filled heart. In the fifth chapter it talks about the melodious heart. In the sixth chapter about the comforted heart and also the heart that is single toward God. So it does have much to say about the heart. I would like to talk possibly about a few of them. If you would turn to the fifth chapter of Ephesians, beginning at the 17th verse, and then going through to the 20th verse. Wherefore, be not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. Now, we must recognize that the epistles are to the church, that they are for the household of God. This doesn't mean you can't be converted through the epistles. But what I'm saying is that essentially... All the epistles are written to the church. The first words usually of the epistles are to the church at. So that it is essentially teaching for the church of Jesus Christ. And so he says, don't be unwise, children of God, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And he has just said in the 16th verse there is to redeem the time because the days are evil. So there is to be a wise use of your time. And of course, if every idle word is to be brought in judgment before God, our time will be judged by God the amount of time we spend in just doing nothing. And there's a tremendous amount of that. It's been well said that man only uses 10%. The most brilliant man uses but 10% of his brain power. Now, when you consider that, and then you consider the amount of time that is spent in doing nothing, just imagine how little brain power is actually used by men. So we're to redeem the time, we're to be wise, and we're to understand what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine. Well, I would hope we wouldn't have to say too much about that to Christians. Be not drunk with wine. Wherein is excess? In the Old Testament it says, you know, wine, when it is aged, there's things like an adder. And... uh, sets on fire the course of nature, the tongue does it, and the tongue is set on fire by those things which are taken in of this character, lose control of it, and lose control of our emotions, 
God warns, you'll be filled with the Spirit of God. And you'll have a deep and a holy joy. No Christian needs wine to get joy. If he does, he doesn't understand his salvation. Joy is something that only God can give. It struck me, uh, right, I guess Tuesday was, last Tuesday, that I, uh, you know, I'm always looking through newspapers, magazines, cutting out, you know, things that I think I can use or have some application uh, to the things I uh, like to talk about. And I, well, I couldn't help but thinking, I hadn't cut it out with any thought of this here, and, but in reading this, I thought how beautifully this puts in, and of course it's a big headline, say cheer leaves a hangover and brain damage. And it's quite fascinating. These are by top scientists. And here's what they said. It's a dateline, Washington, D.C. It's called Christmas cheer. But the alcoholic beverages that will be consumed by millions of Americans over the holidays may leave behind a cheerless legacy, brain damage. You know, it's amazing the things we're discovering, isn't it? You know, we're finding out so much. You know, it's, I don't know, of course, as I look at my congregation, most of you who are younger than me. But uh, I remember the day when I was a boy. Now, imagine this. When I was a boy, there was a slogan in the school. Nobody smoked. And you know what the slogan was? Every cigarette is a coffin nail. Don't smoke. This is when I was a boy. Any track man, I was captain of the track team. Any track man caught smoking was immediately off the track team. Now, I don't know whether they do that anymore. But I think today, you know, we, we suddenly discover these things, see? Now we see big ads on television. It's hard for me to fathom the two. First I see, you know, having such a great time with Winston. <laughs> then the next ad says, why are these people happy? American Cancer Society. You know what I mean? The two can run one after another. One says this is a way to be happy, and the other one says this is a way to die. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? We're living in a day where they seem to be, and of course now it's heart trouble is caused by it. They, they keep putting all of these things down. Well, here now, they say now, it's brain damage. New studies by a group of scientists who have been set aside for this purpose indicate that each time a person takes one drink, get this, permanent brain cell damage results. The more drinks, the more damage. And the damage is irreparable. Since statistics show that Americans drink more alcohol over the Christmas New Year holiday than at any other time, the period of revelry might well be called the annual holiday brain drain. This refutes the 
the long-held belief that moderate drinking is harmless and that only chronic drinkers are hurt by it. Microvascular research, which is this whole group, has demonstrated that one drink destroys brain cells in this way. Alcohol agglutinates circulating red blood cells and turns them into a sticky sludge. And the sludge in turn gums up the arteries, the capillaries, and the veins and causes anoxia or a blockage of oxygen to the brain. The brain cells are damaged, can never be repaired. Now, you know, this is amazing, isn't it? Whoever thinks of this, you know, I say, oh, well, I, I'm just the one drink man, you know? So I say, isn't that, isn't that great? Tremendous? Here's what it says here. The thinking cells of the brain, the neurons, require an enormous, uninterrupted supply of oxygen. If it's supplied for three minutes, if it is stopped, the supply is stopped, the brain is damaged forever. Three minutes completely, the whole brain is damaged. Fifteen to twenty minutes, of course, you're dead. Then it says here, over in the other portion of this, persons with as little as 0.025% of alcohol in the blood, far below the 0.15% used by states to determine drunkenness, show agglutination of blood cells and brain damage. And yet the knowledge that they are risking brain damage with each drink is likely to cause few holiday revelers to have any second thoughts about the fact. Amazing. Amazing. Be not drunk with excess of wine, but be ye filled with the Spirit. You want joy in the morning? You know, as the verse says, joy in the morning. You want joy in the morning? You can have joy in the morning. And here God says, be ye filled with the Holy Spirit. And speaking, in the 19th verse, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. You know, is there anything more wonderful in a person who's got a melody in their heart? Eh? You can't help but see it. The melody's inside. It's not that kind of whistling in the dark, you know. No, it's a real melody in the heart, and the whole life indicates that this person has a melody within the heart that is such a blessing to their lives, and their lives and the lives of others. And so here it says to, to just speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I couldn't help but think here speaking to yourselves, uh, if I might say, it's an, it's a, there are two portions here, I might say, that go together quite well. Colossians 3, I'll show you after. But here, speaking to yourselves, do you know that the greatest portion of your conversational life is in the inner man? The inner dialogue is far beyond anything you say to anybody else. You're always talking to yourself. There is never a moment in your life, scientists will tell you, whether you're awake or asleep, that you're not talking to yourself, always. 
Never an unconscious moment. Never a moment that something is not going on in the brain. And so most of your life is inner dialogue. You're talking within yourself. You're either accusing yourself of this or excusing yourself. Or you're discussing with yourself the problems of the family. Or you're going over the problems or the mistakes you made. Why did I do this? You know, it's all very definite within yourself. It's going on all the time. And so he says here, speaking to yourselves in psalms. And I couldn't, I put in my Bible, in personal psalms. I love the psalms, and I read the psalms. They're a great blessing to my soul. But I think you should have personal psalms. The kind of psalms that you yourself have composed in your own heart about your feelings about God. Real joy of the Lord in your breast and speaking in your heart of these wonderful things that God has given you. Have you ever just rejoiced in what God has given you personally in your heart? You don't have to tell anybody. You're just speaking with God and with yourself. And you're saying, Lord, you've been so good to me. How can I tell you how good you... You know, have you ever done that? Christians should. How often? I, I just, in my, my own heart, I say, Lord, how I thank you. How can you be so good to me? I'm not worthy of such goodness. And what a joy this is in the heart. Because you know that the Lord Jesus is tenderly ministering to you and within your own breast. It's your heart. It's your life. That little world that you are within yourself, the mother, the father, the son, the daughter, that little world that you are that nobody knows but God, and then to sing within your heart and have that melody within the breast. Oh, how blessed that is. Speaking to yourselves in psalms, and hymns, you, you know how often, I don't know how many, I don't know how many hymns Steve Rowland knows by heart. But I do know this much that uh, Steve can go five, six, seven verses, you'll say, listen, have you ever listened to the words of this hymn, Pastor? Sit in my study there. And he can go down five, six solid verses of that hymn, just as though it's a very part of his very being. Those hymns are blessed to him. He's just memorized them for his own soul. I was thrilled, I, and I imagine you were too, at the Christmas Eve, at the Christmas Sunday school program, when all of the, uh, the junior young people up here got up and recited those long portions of Scripture. How blessed and how wonderful and, and how well they did it. Just a, a joy. Melody in your heart. The inner person. The, the, the great and joyous memories we have. I, I think how free we are with our Bibles. You know, when Brother Andrew was here and he says a Bible in Russia, $500 they'll pay for a Bible to get a hold of one, to read, $500. I think these people have been without the Scriptures. All that those old people have, some of the old Russian Christians, are what they memorized. Can't take it away. 
They can memorize and they can hold it in their hearts and go over those glorious verses time and time again when there's no print, nothing they can look at, yet to have the blessings of the Lord because their hearts have been filled with the Word of God. Speaking to yourselves, that inner dialogue. Filled people, that's the way they live, you see. How do you live? How do you, how do you drive your car? Do, do you, when you drive your car, you've got to think about something. Why don't you think about the Lord Jesus? Why go over all those old haunting things all the time? And the mistakes you made. And about tomorrow's problems. And next week's. The whole world's a mess. Why not, when you're driving that car, begin to think about the Lord Jesus? Eh? Why not pray? Why not have that inner dialogue with God? That's what the Lord wants. How many people here tonight have that inner dialogue with the Lord Jesus? We could call it prayer sometimes. But other times, it's just within ourselves. It's going on all the time. What kind of a thing is it? is it? Is it talking to you about the children? and Are you praying about them? Does God in that dialogue in your heart bring you to a place of prayer that you will open your heart completely and as the inner dialogue goes on and you see the problems and the burdens and the needs of the family, suddenly your heart just opens up wide and prayer rushes forth because that dialogue has started you into the road of prayer. Because you see in the inner dialogue that's going on within your breast the many problems and the trials and the burdens that might be in any life. And so it leads into an intensive prayer life. And your heart is open to God in prayer. And so there is this inner work going on in our heart, making melody in your heart toward God, spiritual songs, singing, but it's in the heart. It isn't always, it doesn't mean you have to get into church to sing. It can go on in the heart all the time, deep in joy, giving thanks always for all things unto God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when it says all things, it means all things, giving thanks to God. Then if you turn with me over to Ephesians 6, verses 5 to 7. Ephesians 6, 5 to 7. Now notice here, this has to do with this single heart. The single heart. Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh with fear and trembling in singleness of your heart as unto Christ. Not with eye service or as men pleases, but as the servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, with good will doing services to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or he be free. Now, I, you know, I, I can't say here that this is a easy sometimes to understand from the sense that here God is speaking of the relationship actually of employer and employee. 
And I, you know, we're living in an age which is very difficult, if I can say, the problems that are being faced and uh, the sin of the employer has now engendered the sin of the employee. So that uh, the sin of the one, the industrialist in the beginning, certainly this was the great sin of the industrialist, that the industrialist took advantage of the worker. This is common knowledge. The unions came into existence only because of the mistreatment of labor. Then the unions came in, and for a while their job was done well. Then unions became greatly powerful. And now the sin has been transferred from the industrialist to the union. So that while the one has lost the power, the other is gaining the power. In other words, there's no middle road here. And here God is speaking and saying, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ. We cannot excuse the one or the other. Both were wrong. Both have gone to the extreme ends. We can't say that the union movement was wrong. It has its place. But have you ever seen anything that man does that ever is proper and turns out right? If you have a union, it will sweep and sweep and sweep into the same kind of problems that you had when the industrialist was in control and going and going and going. You find you face the same problems. So that today we face just as great problems now with great unions in control as we did with all the industrialists in control. The problems are of a different character now, that's all. So we cannot say that the sin of the one excuses the sin of the other. There's no balance. So if this be true, if both the industrialist is wrong and the laborer is wrong, and this is true, if you have a recession, you can blame your unions. If you have a Great Depression, this time you can't blame the industrialists. You will have to blame those that are continually, the prices are skyrocketing and skyrocketing, and the salary you receive today under union labor is less purchasing power than 15 years ago. You can read that statistically in U.S. News and World Report. That the money you now receive is purchasing less than it ever did before. And it is becoming more and more and more that way. So the higher and the higher we go after this, more wages, more wages, more wages, the higher and the higher, the great, great, this tremendous thing that is pushing prices up higher and higher and higher, and that the government right now is trying to hold down and down and down, and that's all you read now in the papers is this is the new Nixon policy, and this is going to be tight money, and we're trying to escape from all these things that are coming. But let me tell you, that's just growing worse and worse and worse and worse. And while the government's debt is $360 billion, I would remind you that the national debt on your homes and on your cars is now over $1 trillion in the United States.
This is public debt. Now, what does it say here then? If this be the case, then you have but one answer. What you labor, you labor for Christ. You can't win in the labor union movement. You can't win in the industrial movement. This has nothing to do with eternity. This has nothing to do with a Christian. God here is speaking to Christians. And he says, now remember something from me. You won't always get what you deserve from men. You'll always believe you deserve more than you're receiving. So would you remember one thing for me? Remember that whatsoever ye do in word or deed, notice that. He says, don't serve them with eye service. That word in the Greek means don't be clock watchers. That's what it means. He says, don't be clock watchers, but as the servants of Christ. You say, do you mean that that little job that I have in that corporation I'm to look at as a servant for Christ? Yes, that is exactly what God says. Otherwise, your labor is not dignified by God. And so since neither the labor movement is right nor the industrial movement is right, both crave for power. Then there is but one road to take, and that is the road of saying, I am the servant of Jesus Christ. I'm not laboring for the American Telephone and Telegraph. I'm not laboring for General Motors. I'm not laboring for this bank or that bank or anything else. I am laboring for Jesus, and I know one thing that even though they may forget me, knowing that whatsoever good thing any man does, the same shall receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And we're to understand that this life that we have, we are going to receive the reward from Jesus Christ, knowing that of him ye will receive the reward. Over in Colossians 3, if you just turn with me quickly, Paul repeats here some of this. 16th verse, he says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another. Notice now, this is a little different. The last time we're speaking to yourselves. Now he says, now into between each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, the same thing, same words, singing with grace. Remember he said, melody, grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. And the 23rd verse, it repeats it. And whatsoever ye do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that of the Lord you'll receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. So he says you are mistreated a little bit. I, don't, I haven't met any laborers who don't think they're a little mistreated, that they're not being paid as much as they should doesn't seem to have any height or any place that we can go, no matter how high salaries can become. It doesn't seem that there's ever a point at which we say, we've reached it. Did you ever hear anybody say that? 
I have yet to meet a labor leader whoever says, well, we've got it, no more is needed. Never. But here we're told by the Lord Jesus, remember, you may be mistreated and it is likely that you will be. But I want to tell you, he says, whatsoever ye do in word or in deed, do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who will give you the reward. Now, let me tell you, it takes more than a human heart to receive that. It takes a Christian heart. Human hearts will rebel against that immediately. Human hearts will say, yeah, but you only live once. You've got to get everything you can. You've got to make it now or you'll never make it. You hear that, don't you? Well, let me tell you something, Christian. You've got it made. What are you talking about? You've got to make it. What does it say? It tells you here, knowing that of him you receive the reward. And over in Ephesians it says, knowing that with him is the inheritance. What is he saying? He says, why, listen, don't you know that you've inherited, inherited all of Christ's kingdom? You're joint heirs with Jesus Christ of his kingdom. Do you in these few years you've got to live, make it? Have it, get fame, get popular, get your money, get a fortune. Is this, is this is all you're thinking about? Then you don't understand life and you're on the wrong road. You've never really come to grips with Christ and said, listen, I'll work and even if they never appreciate me, I won't do it for them, Lord. I'll do it for you because you've promised, don't do it, you said, as unto men. Do it unto me. And know this, that though you're mistreated here, of Christ, you will receive the reward. Well, boy, let me tell you, this changes everything. But the human race doesn't accept this. It's impossible. Why, they say, now, pastor, this is silly. What kind of a judgment is this, Pastor? You know, I'll never forget one, one time, oh, about eight or ten years ago, a young man came here. He's not here now. Ostensibly, he got saved under my ministry, and he was out of work. He had had some problems in the past, in a few jobs that he had been on. But I thought, well, he came to me and he said, you know, life has changed now and I'm a Christian. And uh, he said, I wonder if you could look for a job for me. So I thought, well, I pray his conversion is quite sincere. I wasn't too impressed. But I thought, well, all right, I'll do what I can and see if I can get him a job. So I did get him a job, and I got him a job that paid pretty well with one of my businessmen in church. Well, I want to tell you, that was the saddest thing I ever did. I found out that he was a union organizer. 
and he caused more trouble for that man in business than any man he had ever hired in his life. When he tried finally to get rid of him, the union said, you can't get rid of him. And all he had done was cause problems and problems and problems. And I found that the conversion that he had witnessed to was merely that as a union organizer, he could get into one of the firms that some of my men represented. And he caused more problems and more trials than anyone I had ever recommended for a job. Now to him, the job wasn't for Christ, that of Christ he might receive the reward. He had but one thought in mind, and that was that he was going to be the head pin in that organization in a very short time. And he was. He was. So, beloved, I, you, you have to understand that if you really are in love with Christ, you're not the troublemaker. You're not the one who causes the deep and terrible problems in business life. May I say that? Whether you're a boss or a worker, I'm saying that that there must be a perfect balance. You're to understand your position as a Christian, and your position as a Christian is well set down by God, and that is that the labor which you're doing, you do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I said before in the beginning of the message, certainly, there is a violent distrust between the industrialists and between the labor unions. The only place that I see where a man who's a Christian can walk is with Jesus Christ looking to the reward. All he can do is accept that on earth. He says, accept it. That's what the Lord Jesus said. He said, they'll revile you, they'll reproach you, they'll hate you. And he says, just accept it and take it. Because remember, you're doing whatever you're doing for me. Bear your witness well for Christ. And one day, I'll give you the reward. Now, human hearts, as I said, don't want this and want no part of it. All they can say is, all I want is more, more, more in this life. And yet I find that this is exactly the opposite from which Jesus said. And Jesus said, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The foxes have holes and the birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place for his head. And then he looks at us and he says, shall the servant expect more than his master? No, no, no. Of him we will receive the reward. Then just one last thing that I'm through. And that is over in Ephesians the sixth chapter, the 21st, the same chapter, 21st and 22nd verses. And here, 
is Paul, a great apostle. He says, now, now ye also may know my affairs and how I do. Tychius, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, shall make known to you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that ye might know our affairs and that he might comfort your hearts. Now, I would, here it would seem to our human hearts is a paradox because, number one, it says here that a man may know the worst and yet be a comfort to someone. He may know the worst and yet be a comfort. He's going to send him Tychius. Paul is in that position where he knows that it won't be long before he's taken and slain. He sees all the signs around him. He realizes that they're all against him. He says, I'm going to send him to you. He's going to tell you all about myself. He's going to tell you my affairs. He's going to tell you the seriousness of the situation for the Christian church, for the beginnings here. He's going to tell you, but at the same time, he's going to be a comfort to you. Now, let me tell you, it's only in the Christian life that this is at all possible, that a man can tell the worst and yet also be a source of comfort to another soul. How often does this happen? Where someone has that job of bringing bad news and yet is also a great source of comfort. I think of Paul. He, he must have been coming to the end of the road. I, I think of his ministry. Uh, within a few short months, he's going to die. Yet he cries out for me to live as Christ and to die as a gain. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is a power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew and to the Gentile. I'm not ashamed. He knows what's coming. Tychius has come to tell him, I want to tell you about Paul. And he can go through all the dire stories of the beatings and, and the scourgings and all the things that happened to Paul that are recorded for us in Corinthians. He can tell him of all these things, how he's been lashed and beaten and how he stands fast in the faith. Not a young man, but he's standing fast in the faith. And then at the same time when he's telling this, Paul says, he's going to tell you all about me, everything, so you'll, be, you'll know and he's going to be a source of comfort to you. He's going to comfort your hearts. You know, this is a paradox, isn't it, that we can tell the worst about something and at the same time be a source of blessing. It's like coming into the family where someone has died, where they've lost a loved one. And it's a paradox. Here there's death, and here is the preacher or the Christian coming in to be a source of comfort to the heart. How can comfort come forth? You say, but I've lost my loved one. Ah, it is the worst. You loved your loved one, but I want to bring you the comfort of Christ. He knew Christ or she knew Christ. They're absent from the body, present with the Lord. One day God's going to join you together again. There's a heavenly home for you. There's comfort for you. Oh, comfort ye one another with a comfort wherewith you've been comforted. There's comfort. Are you a comforter? Are you able to comfort people? 
if someone did lose a loved one, if someone, there was some tragedy in their life, would there be comfort? I thought last, was it Wednesday night, I think Barbara and Wayne Rauscher were here. They'd lost their little baby, killed in an accident. And I met them at the door. And they said to me, thank you, Pastor, for the comfort you are to us. And all I had done is, is write them a letter of comfort to their hearts. The worst had happened, but here was comfort from Christ so that they could stand strong in the law. It's a paradox, isn't it? That you can suffer the worst thing in life and yet be comforted by our precious Savior. And each of us can be a source of comfort. Who have you ever comforted? May I ask you, who have you ever comforted? Have you been a source of comfort? Would you know what to do? If you go into a funeral home, I've listened to people. I've been there. I'm the preacher. I'm the minister. I listen to people as they pass the coffin and as they pass the loved ones who are sitting there. I am shocked sometimes. Oh, it's so little comfort. Pass by and say, I'm sorry for your trouble. Oh, there's so much more could be done. I can't think of anything more wonderful than someone who's lost a loved one to get 10 or 15 or 20 wonderful letters from Christians of comfort. How blessed. I imagine they'd be laid on the side and gone over every day and read and say, oh, the comfort of the Lord. What it would mean. It shocks me. Have you ever been to a Roman Catholic funeral? They shocked me more than ever. The last time I went to one, someone had died and I had to go to this funeral. And I, w I was so shocked in my heart that nothing was said to the widow, nothing was said to the children, nothing at all. They, they just sat there. And all they did was sprinkle holy water on the coffin and sway, shake incense on the coffin and walk around it, walk around it, walk around it, never look at the widow, never look at the children. And she's crying and the little tots are there and that's all, they just walk out, nothing. No comfort, no comfort. Christian, have you been a source of comfort? Hmm? Paul says, I'm going to send tickets to you, and he is going to tell you all the worst things. I, I have to be frank with you, they're not good. I'm not, in, I'm not in good health. I'm not doing wonderful. I'm having problems. But he's going to comfort your hearts with it. He's going to tell you all about my Savior and the power of the gospel and the glory of it. And I'm going to be translated, and it may be by the most violent of deaths, but don't worry about me. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. What kind of comfort are you? Hmm? What kind of comfort are you? Oh, I pray that, that you'll have something to say, something that would comfort the human heart in the time of trial and in their time of burden. Are you a laborer? Labor for Christ. Then you won't have any heartaches. You say, Pastor, do you mean I only dig ditches? Okay, dig them for the Lord. Hope you're not digging them for that man you work for. What'll he ever give you? Just a few dollars to get bread on the table, that's all. But, Pastor, I'm a teacher in school. All right, teach for Christ. 
I'm a scientist. All right, be a scientist for Christ. Whatsoever you do in word or deed, do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ. Knowing of him, you shall receive the reward. For his is the kingdom. All that men give you, you're going to leave aside when you go in the grave. Right? Can't take a thing with you. Of a truth, Paul says, you came into the world with nothing, you will leave with... All right. So you fight, fight, fight to get to the top, and you get to the top and you die. Who'd you work for? Tell me, what can your employee do for you then? Knowing of him, you'll receive the reward. Be not drunken with excess of wine, but be ye filled with the Spirit of God. And then comfort hearts. Have a singleness of heart toward God. Singleness. Notice that. Singleness of heart toward God. And you know that means for a married man, a married woman, you've got a single heart toward God. My heart is single in my love for Jesus Christ. My love for Christ is above all the loves of earth. But because I love Jesus Christ with all my heart, I'm a better husband to my wife. And I love her more than I ever could have loved her in any other way. Because I love Christ more. Alice knows I love Jesus more than I love her. But in my loving Christ more, I love Alice more than she'd ever be loved by any earthly man who ever lived. That's what God does. That's what God does. Let us pray. Father, we do thank thee for thy precious word, Lord, blessed to our hearts. We've been talking about the melodious heart, the comforted heart, the single heart. Bless these words, Lord, to our hearts. And as the new year comes, we pray that we may enter it well. May we remember that the only way to dignify our labor will never get what we think we should get from men. But if we will just remember that the Lord Jesus says, whatsoever ye do, doesn't matter what it is, in word or in deed, do as unto the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that of him ye shall receive the reward. And long after all the employers of earth are dead, and long after heaven and earth have passed away with a great noise, the reward for the joy we've had of saying, Lord, whatever we do, we're doing for you, will be born through all eternity. Now, Father, convince our hearts deeply within us of this. It's actually the only sensible and logical outlook on life if we believe in Christ as our personal Savior and the one with whom we will inherit and inhabit eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.